The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I would like to talk about how concentration supports wisdom and how it's onward leading as a factor on the path. Both um, the effect of learning to concentrate can be seen as a wisdom practice and what is being concentrated doing for you and then how do you use a concentrated mind to move on and see more deeply. So I think as Liz was emphasizing that it's much less helpful to get hung up on the goal of getting concentrated as it is to learn to understand and enjoy the process because the whole process is developing wisdom and happiness, it's developing skillfulness and kindness and compassion. All these things are being developed along the way of developing wise concentration. So we were just, I was, well, we were each at different retreats with uh, Venerable Analio, this uh, scholar monk who's very popular right now for good reasons. And uh, one thing he said is that one way to see the whole path is as a refinement of happiness. And I really like that. So our, our sense of happiness is getting more and more refined as we move along this path. Related to that, um, One way to see the path is as three different levels of purification of our habit energies and our mind streams. So, although the path starts with view and intention, we can also come around and look at that in the end. So, the first level that gets purified is sometimes called transgression, which means you don't act out, you don't hit people and say nasty things. So, through right speech, right action, and right livelihood, we're working on being able to be aware enough to restrain our actions. And then the mental cultivation factors that culminating culminating in right concentration are calming what's called, purifying what's called the manifestation. So how thoughts, emotions, and intentions uprise. So your internal turmoil, you might be very well behaved on the outside, but still suffering a lot on the inside from the sense of needing to manage and repress a lot of difficult thoughts and emotions. So the process of mental cultivation and concentration purifies this level by temporarily setting these things aside and learning to cultivate deep calm. And then finally, but there's still a latent tendency. These things have not been uprooted because you haven't really seen through the fundamental delusions that cause. And so concentration, getting concentrated is a conditioned state. It requires certain conditions. It requires certain effort and activity in the mind. And it requires usually, you know, peace and quiet and retreat and so forth. And you can't always have that. And so you're, until you've really uprooted your view of existence, you're always prone to some condition that's just going to, you know, be too much and trigger trigger something that's unpurified. So this final stage is, is um, the insight stage that uproots the latent capabilities of greed, hatred, and delusion. So... Um, 
whatever method or practice we're working with, even if, if we think of it just as a regular insight vipassana meditation or if we're particularly working on concentration in one-pointed sort of way or if we're working on opening the heart through metta. So whether we're working with the breath or the body or metta or an open awareness of what happens, our attempts to cultivate right effort and right mindfulness and settle into right concentration we will encounter this complex tangle of our habits and our contractions of our untrained and unenlightened mind and body. So a very useful way of beginning to tease apart and work skillfully with this tangle is to look at it in terms of five tendencies of the mind that hinder our attempts to mindfully settle on our object. And this is the teaching that's often known as the five hindrances. I have a mixed relationship with this. I, I've heard so many talks on the five hindrances that I usually kind of, as soon as somebody says the talk is on the five hindrances, and maybe you feel that way. But if you've been to a lot of retreats, you've probably heard a million of these. But more and more, I'm really, as I'm really getting re- to realize, oh, <laughs> you know, wait, here's a talk that's highly relevant to what's happening a lot of the time. <laughs> in my life so these are things that are happening when we sit down and try to meditate and it's very useful to learn to recognize what is your own experience of these things and how do these five factors appear for you what is your favorite way to get hooked or lost and what is how does certain some of these manifest so I'll just go through the teaching on each of these five a little bit there's a sutta that introduces a, a simile for what it's like to be under the influence of one of these and then there's another sutta that talks about what it feels like to be free from one of these so I'll be including those and the the what it feels like to be under the influence of one of these is talks about various kinds of water so the image in mind is that there's potentially a very clear forest pool of water that is completely clear and completely still. When you look in, you can see all the way to the bottom and all the little pebbles and all the little fish, and you can see every single thing that's going on in that pool with complete clarity. And that stands for your whole mind, including your what we think of as our unconscious and our subconscious. All that can be opened up and purified through this process. So when you're looking in this pool of water it can be not so clear to see into it in various ways so the first one of these hindrances is sense desire or just wanting the mind that wants something else wants something better than what's happening right and the metaphor for that is that the pool has all kinds of color dye in it and that's great because you really aren't seeing what's there you're seeing this illusion of something added on that's making you fascinated by it but you're not really seeing the reality of the life the actual life in that pool so um you know what gets you distracted when you sit and meditate many people spend hours in various kinds of fantasies you know sexual fantasies work fantasies what vacation fantasies food fantasies anything that you can think of on the gross level these hindrances are hindering you when they take your attention completely away from the present moment and you get completely lost in whatever fantasy is going on. So the antidotes to sense desire is, first of all, to just if you can just notice it and let go of it, fine. There's ways of working with noticing that your perception has narrowed to focus on just certain parts of what it is you're interested in. And just beginning to use... This is how working with these hindrances is wisdom training. 
because you can learn to see how your perceptions are being skewed and how your mind is narrowed and grabbed on and focused on this thing. So the more you can notice that, you can bring in other elements of the thing. The classic thing is to focus on the parts of the body and their unappealingness if you're hung up on you know, sexual lust, for example, to focus on body parts that are less appealing. But that could work for anything, you know, just seeing that you've become completely focused on the idea that you're going to eat some food and you're not noticing that you're really full and that that makes you uncomfortable and that, you know, how it feels to eat too much sugar. And you can bring all those perceptions into it. And then there's the practice of guarding the sense doors, which as you get more settled, you can really begin to notice how your consciousness is moving between the eyes and the ears or the inner eye and the inner imagination you know the smell you might miss the fact that there was a smell from lunch or something that came up to you and has distracted your attention in a sitting before lunch or something like that so really becoming more and more exactly aware of our sensory input and this is again an aspect of wisdom and the wisdom of feeling the discomfort of wanting itself we're so focused. Once our mind gets a nice image in it, of what, then we don't even notice that we're straining and contracting in relation to that image. So opening up, again, opening up to the whole body and noticing what is the effect of wanting itself apart from the attraction of the object. So when this desire is no longer there, it's compared to getting out of debt and repaying a loan. And I kind of think of that as like not being overextended and overreaching, you know, because there's something about desire where you're way out there somehow, out of your body, way out there imagining something. So it's sort of like the overextended feeling of having spent too much money to get something that is really not maybe worth it. So the second hindrance is the hindrance of ill will or it's more generally sometimes called aversion when we're sitting. So wanting something not to be happening. And, um, you know, it could be going over your problems that make you mad and people that make you mad so that you're actually caught in anger. And in in the gross version of this, it's actually sitting there fuming with anger, going over your revenge strategies and so forth. And the classic antidote to this is to try to bring in some understanding of the metta practice, the loving-kindness, compassion practice. Um, So the wisdom that's being cultivated when you're working with aversion is the value of kindness and equanimity. I found a wonderful quote in a paper about the... I'm not sure. I think this comes from the commentaries, but it's talking about an attitude you can take in the case of anger. Being angry with another person, what can you do to him? Can you destroy his virtue and his other good qualities? Have you not come to your present state by your own actions and will also go hence according to your own actions? Anger towards another is just as if someone wishing to hit another person takes hold of glowing coals or a heated iron rod or of excrement. And in the same way, if the other person is angry with you, what can he do? Can he destroy your virtue and your other good qualities? He too has come to his present state by his own actions and will go hence according to his own actions. Like an unaccepted gift or like a handful of dirt thrown against the wind, his anger will fall back on his own head. So these are kind of ways to use uh, an understanding of what equanimity is and the way karma works to let go of being extremely caught up in anger. 
And then there's just the myriad more subtle things of just wishing your knee pain would go away and simply spending the whole time saying, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, instead of being able to open to it and relax. So there's a lot of wisdom that you can develop in working with aversion. And the simile for getting over it is compared to getting over an illness or a disease where almost every move you make is painful and difficult. So I think those are sort of the two gross ones that when we're, our minds are really lost, we're lost. You can, it's very useful to ask yourself, are you not wanting something or wanting something? Or what is it? In what way? What is the pull of this thing that keeps getting you lost? And then the next two could be considered a little bit more energetic or in a way they could be a little bit reduced qualities of these first two. The next one is sloth and torpor. And the image for that is a pond that's overgrown with algae and moss. So you can't see into it. It's got that kind of dull, covered over feeling. There's all kinds of sort of... Yes? Was there an image for the oh, I'm sorry. Boiling water. I didn't say it. Very good. Boiling water. Water that's on a fire and boiling, and so it's big boils, bubbles that you can't see anything through. Right. So sloth and torpor is overgrown with algae and moss. And so there's a lot of ways of working with sloth and torpor. Sometimes you're just tired, you know, and some of these have to do with working with sleepiness. But this, as a hindrance, it's really an attitude. It's a subtle denial, depression, kind of, oh, I don't, why bother? Never mind. I, I don't want to kind of attitude. And so... There are some, there's a long list of somewhat mechanical things, like you can focus on the in-breath, gives you more energy. It's fundamentally a low-energy state related to a certain attitude. So you can focus on, you can eat less, you can become aware of light, so open your eyes and let in more light, or maybe bring up an internal image of light. So these things cut through it. And you may need to reflect on your motives for practice. You know, it may be a kind of subtle aversion or or avoidance. So you can get interested in uh, what attitude is lying behind it. Sometimes it's a it's a revealing of a very deep conflict in your life. Something it's a form of psychological denial. You know, you might be getting close in your practice to opening up to some difficult memories or something. You know, or something that you, as a child, maybe or when it happened, that you really not that there's necessarily a specific thing, but maybe it may be some pattern of unhappiness in your life that you just aren't ready to look at yet. And so you can be very gentle and patient with yourself and and just remind yourself to stay interested and stay right. Don't try to force it to change, but just stay right at the edge of what it feels like. And there's a lot of wisdom that can come out of this because you can learn that you can be aware even of these very murky states. It was a great revelation to me one day to realize that the mind that is aware of sleepiness is not sleepy. It's completely clear that this murkiness is what's happening. Andrea has this, fella has this wonderful explanation involving a mirror. And when the mirror is fogged up, you know, you think, oh, the mirror isn't working. You can't see yourself for the fog. But the mirror is exactly accurately reflecting every little drop <laughs> of the fog, you know. For, so the mirror is functioning, and from its point of view, it's very clear that there is this little drops of fog on it. 
And so it's very interesting to see how you can separate awareness from the murkiness of what's happening in your mind. So the wisdom, the metaphor for getting out of it is being let out of jail. So the mind is free of the con- the kind of confinement of being in this under the algae <laughs> to mix those metaphors in this pond. So then the next hindrance is restlessness and worry. And the metaphor for that is a pond whipped by the wind. So everything is so stirred up that it can't see anything. So Restlessness and worry has always seemed to me to cover a lot of territory because there's physical restlessness which can happen as a kind of energetic imbalance or time of day thing or sometimes just as more energy releases in meditation you get at times very agitated. Sometimes it's called restlessness and remorse or worry so there can also be a sort of backward looking remorse so this is how maybe if you said something or done something unskillful earlier this is where this turns up in your meditation that you just keep thinking, oh, why did I do that? Why did I do that? Right? Or some of us are more anxiety-oriented and it's all of our agendas. I know that if I have something upcoming that I'm nervous about, it's very hard for me to sit because my mind will not put that down. And it keeps thinking, oh, a quiet moment, that's a moment to solve that problem and work on that. And it will not let it go. So all three of those kind of come into this restlessness, remorse, and worry. So if it's a matter of bodily, primarily bodily agitation, whole body mindfulness, very broad pasture, as much space as you can give it, like the wild horse that gets to just run all over the pasture until it's tired of it. Or sometimes I think of holding a very fussy child on my lap, like, okay, there, 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 there. And I'm not really forcing it to calm down. I'm just holding it while it fidgets, right? So just as spacious as you can be with all that. I've sat through so many hours of practice on retreat. I used to have this restless leg thing where my whole body would sort of jerk and, you know, it's unpleasant. I also, I learned so much from that. I learned about unpleasant. You know, this is unpleasant. And again, the mind that can be aware of that is not necessarily itself being jerked around. It can be, there can be a stillness that's holding this motion in the body. Guilt and remorse, you know, forgiveness, realization that you're now doing something wholesome and motivation to, you know, put it forward, behave better next time, learn from it. Insight into conditions that led you to do that, that relate to insight into not-self, you know, that if you couldn't, if you didn't do any better than that, those were the conditions at the time. So seeing how this is actually adding ill will toward yourself to what was actually unavoidable at the time but may be avoidable in the future if you learn from it properly. And worry in the sense of anxiety. Um, It really is a a motive to deepen our wisdom, the whole business of working with anxiety and our ideas of perfectionism and our ideas of our self-image and how important it is to get everything done that we need to get done. That's just a, a great motive. Oddly for me, and this might be the opposite for some people, recalling that I may not have long to live, recalling the whole idea of end of life helps me with that kind of anxiety by putting things in perspective and returning me to how, if this were the last moment of my life, would I want to worry about that thing I'm supposed to do next week? 
or would I somehow be able to let it go and return to a sense of gratitude and presence and much more again it's that narrowing of perspective versus opening back up to this next week this will be over this will be a small thing I can't even remember everything I've been anxious about in my life and why am I letting this ruin my life and the the commentary suggests association with people who possess dignity restraint and calm so you can kind of bring to mind the value of a person like that in a kind of a psychophysical imprint of what it's like to be restrained and calm. Um, the the metaphor for being over it is being freed from slavery. And that certainly relates at least to my kind of anxiety where I'm kind of a slave. You're a slave of the self and its need to be seen a certain way and get everything right and never have made a mistake. And, you know, all that is, is slavery to the, to your sense of self. And the last one is called doubt. And the metaphor for doubt is the water is muddy and in the dark. (laughs) So you can't see a thing. It's muddy and in the dark. And doubt is referring, you know, not to some, not to our natural right to question the teachings and try to explore and understand and decide for ourselves what we believe about things. But it's getting caught in that loop of, well, shall I follow the breath or shall I do metta or shall I look out the window or shall I do this later? And, you know, oh, I'll go read another book. Well, this book doesn't agree with that book. I don't know what to do. And just going round and round and round instead of actually practicing. So doubt is very crippling because once you get caught in it, you are just unable to make that simple, what you could call a leap of faith, back into let me just feel what's going on right now. You know, it's got you up in your head spinning on ideas. And so the simplest antidote is just can you really remember that it's so much better to just notice this is doubt. Let me just feel a breath. Let me just feel my feet on the floor. Anything that can cut through that that stuff. And if you're really finding that... Um, there is something you really don't understand about this or you you know you may need to read some more you may need to talk to a teacher so it may actually need more actual you know backing up and serious taking seriously why why can't i do this simple returning to my experience so the wisdom is in arousing this interest in direct experience and um the des- the description of being done with this is that you're no longer perplexed about wholesome states. So you actually know, okay, it's wholesome to just anything. Noticing is wholesome. Awareness is wholesome. And it will sort itself out in the long run. The metaphor for being done with it is completing a long journey across a desert full of bandits and you're back in a land of safety. So you've crossed a long, dry spell where you really didn't know what you were doing. Now, again, you know how to practice. You know what the direction is. You're back on the trail. You know, you know all I need to... You're remembering that all I need to do is just open up to notice any single thing about what's actually happening. And then the practice can proceed from there. So, when is a hindrance? A hindrance is when it has convinced you for some reason that it's more important to engage in it than to notice what's happening. So it's not a hindrance when you notice it and when you see it as a phenomenon kind of in sync with the four foundations of mindfulness. It's a bodily, mental 
phenomenon of some kind. When you're seeing it that way, you're not hindered by it, then it's just phenomenon that's part of your process. But when you're completely lost in fantasy, completely lost in talking to yourself in an aversive way about what's happening, so fidgety that you're convinced if somebody asks you, are you meditating, you'd say, no, I can't right now because I'm too restless or I'm too bored or sleepy or depressed or something. That's when they're hindrances. So as we grow in skill and recognizing, seeing through these hindrances, that's when concentration can grow. The feeling I'm... Yes, I'm a little behind here. Um, I want to share this simile that I've always enjoyed of uh, imagine an upside-down you, and you keep trying to be present either with your object, if even if that's general presence. You're either with it, and you keep slipping off, and you keep slipping off, and you keep slipping off. And as concentration grows, it's like the you begins to reshape itself into a bowl. And so your attention stays put, and it doesn't roll off so easily. So that's kind of a metaphor for this felt sense of what it's like to be more concentrated. So concentration prepares... I'm just going to finish, okay? <laughs> so <laughs> I've got too long to talk here. Concentration prepares the mind for insight because it stabilizes the attention. It's sometimes compared to like having a camera that you put on a tripod so that you're holding it very still so that the image is less blurry. Or you might think of it as slowing down the frames of a movie so that you can see frame by frame. At some time, at some point when you do that, it's no longer people doing stuff and having emotional upsets, but it's frames and there's space between the frame. And when it's like that, you can really see oh, this little movement here is where the mind is grabbing on to an idea about something instead of just letting it be seen to arise and pass and the next thing arises and passes. And as so concentration helps to stabilize the mind to that degree. And as I hope my comments on the hindrances let you see that just simply the, simply the attempt to work with the hindrances is concentrating and is developing wisdom. And then concentration is also very healing and it is a force of integration of our minds and bodies. So Liz and I were just, I mean, I was just speculating, Liz was listening, but I'm moved to say it. You've often heard that meditation is like getting yourself out of the way, in a way, getting yourself and your agendas and all your thoughts. So concentration itself is a way of calming the mind and getting the mind to settle down. And somehow it makes a space where some deep healing and integration can happen because the body continues to function while you're just relaxed. And in that way, there's a lot more, um, less interference with the natural processes of the body. So I think in that way, this healing and this integration, um, in a way, we need to go through this process of reconciling this heartfelt wish for happiness with this lifetime's accumulation of memories of little pains and pleasures and the body's natural tendency to want to repeat the pleasure and never have that pain again. And so the body is very rigid and fixated in different ways and the mind is rigid and fixated in different ways. And so letting all that be seen and relax is part of how this process works. And as we relax into this, we get this feeling of all of our faculties working in harmony, the body and the heart and the mind. 
And we're getting this deep learning that there's an alternative source of well-being that's not dependent at all on grabbing at things in the world and fighting with and resisting things in the world. And it gives us this mind that's concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability. That's a description of a concentrated mind. And that's the right instrument then for seeing more and more subtly all the way through until something completely lets go of any tendency in clinging or believing in some self that needs to get things its way. So the Buddha says, for one who is concentrated, there is no need to intend, may I know and see things as they really are. It's a natural law for one with a concentrated mind to know and see things as they really are. So this points to insight as a fruit of this practice. You can't make insight happen. You can get your mind, this instrument of awareness, to a settled point. And what we see is this constantly changing, ephemeral, process nature of experience and how trying to cling and identify and grasp onto it uh, just leads to suffering. It's been described as like rope burn. You know, this, this, like you're on a rope and you try to hang on to it if you don't. One of my teachers used to say it's like, at first it, if you let go of the rope you feel like you're falling and then you realize, well, there's no ground. <laughs> So it's okay. <laughs> it's just it's just letting the flow flow and this is like complete freedom. So I hear. I know nothing about complete freedom. But <laughs> but it's inspiring. Um Yeah. So I think I'll stop now. Um I want to end Since this is our last talk of this last series here, I just want to end with a quote from the Bhikkhu Bodhi book. He says, The only requirements for reaching the final goal are two, to start and to continue. (laughs) So all of you have started, we've all started, and may we all continue. And uh, let's break out again and talk about some of this. And we'll have some... Okay, are you ready for the question? The question is, what have you learned from this whole nine months of studying the path? <laughs> that has increased. So, I mean, you're free to pick any level of, you know, activity or meditation or speech or anything. What have you learned that has increased your skill in working with those hindrances of desire, aversion, sloth, restlessness, worry, and doubt? Does that make enough sense? What have you learned about working with these five forces? What? When? When? This whole year. I mean, what you know? What have you learned? How do you work with these things? Is a simpler way of saying it, maybe. But maybe you've learned something this year that's helped. So, how do you work with these forces when they come up in your life or in your practice? These are hindering forces in life, also. Not, I mean, in life off the cushion desire aversion sloth and torpor restlessness and worry and doubt how do you how do you work with those any of them okay round and round same as last time maybe somebody will spark uh, uh, the idea yes go ahead and start
Okay, so we have a few minutes to love to hear what came up out of that and or any general questions about this topic today. Am I on? Yeah. So will we be given... um, in the reflections, sort of specific meditation instructions for cultivating the concentration? Or should we just kind of go business as usual with the breath? Well, if you specifically, there's three kind of approaches here. One is the very traditional try to stay with the breath in the most place you feel it most clearly and just keep coming back to the breath over and over and over again. That is the traditional way to develop one-pointed concentration. If that works for you without causing a huge, you know, rebellion in your whole system, (laughs) then then that's the traditional way to do it, you know. There's Gil's wonderful series on Anapanasati that she talked about. He has a series of recordings on concentration, so I would start with one of those if you want to do that. Many people find that that is just like trying to put a hurricane in a small box and it does not work. And so another way is to try to learn just more the open-ended, open awareness way where you just try more and more to be present and accepting and aware of what's happening and less carried away by it. And that can take a night, that's a like more gentle way in to settling down. And as you settle down at some point that, settling into the breath may be more available. Um, Other people find that the metta practice is a very helpful and useful concentration practice. So we're going to close with a little bit of that where you repeat these phrases. There's ways of doing it or you can simply bring an image to mind that opens your heart. You know, maybe your pet or a a picture of something that's something that's very easy to just feel open-hearted and then try to stay there with that feeling and see how if you can cultivate and extend that feeling. So there are a lot of ways to work with that that can also settle. It just depends on where you're coming from. I love what something that Andrea said recently of do what is easy. We're so programmed to think, oh, I should do the one that's hard for me for some reason because that's the real macho practice or something. But do what's easy. Do what works because that's what the one that's going to let you get somewhere is what works best for you. And then, you know, as you calm down and get a little more flexibility and a little more like that list I read, wieldy and malleability, less fixated mind, you can try something else as a fun experiment and see if that works. But, you know, find what works. Thank you. And I think, uh, excuse me, I think part of your question was in the weekly uh, reflections that are sent out this month, whether there are practices in there, and you remember them better oh, than I do. Oh, um, no, it's more reflecting on your relationship to it, to the whole subject in the weekly reflections. There might be. I, I can't honestly say that there aren't, but it's not the main focus of the things. Thank you. That was your question. Perhaps what I answered was someone else's question. Okay. All right. Sylvie. Um, so when when you were giving your talk, um, I was kind of realizing that uh, before I, I saw the Eightfold Path, that mindfulness and concentration, for me, they were one. Mm-hmm. Um, and could you 
I mean, I can see it's distinct, it's two different paths, but could you summarize, is it that the concentration is the mean to mindfulness? Or could you, is there a summary to yeah. distinct, distinguish Yeah, that's them? a great question. Um, there are two different factors of mind. It, it's not very helpful to think of them as two different practices, really, but as two different... Mindfulness refers to knowing what's happening. And concentration refers to how easily are, are you jerked around off of... Can you put your attention somewhere and have it stay? And to the degree that you can do that, you have more concentration. And to the degree that your attention is constantly hijacked by a rising phenomenon and dragged off to think about something or something, you know, then you're less concentrated. So, does that make any sense? So, it seems like you... Uh, confirmed that from what you're describing the concentration is the enabler of mindfulness because you're saying mindfulness is seeing and concentration is what enables you to well no it's more like the other way around almost I mean mindfulness keeps keeps knowing where your mind is and if you didn't know where your mind is you certainly can't keep it on an object so you know what's happening you know what is happening. You know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's more like the... Conti- one way to look at it is the continuity of mindfulness is concentration. So how continuous is your... Mind- mindfulness is something you can... You, know, you can practice paying attention and putting your attention somewhere and noticing what's happening. And the more you do that the more continuously you can easily, you can simply stay present with what's happening, the more you could say the factor of concentration is getting stronger. Mm. I guess I'm, I would... They I'm support maybe the each only other. person who is kind of like the, a different um, view on this because uh-huh. I think that coming from um, having been a professional ballerina, I'm extremely concentrated. That's mm-hmm. like a skill I came and I just like... Mm-hmm. Concentration. I don't need to practice concentration, mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that didn't mean before that I was mindful, right? So, yeah, uh, I see it kind of the, right. To me, it it actually has been incredibly helpful in becoming mindful, right? Because I have this skill of concentration, yes. but yes. I may be the. No, I different. see what you mean. It is, they are different, and some people are naturally gifted at concentration or naturally had an, a chance to develop concentration. So it is possible that some people can simply sit down and stay on the breath or stay on a mantra or something and get very zoned in and not be mindful. And for those people, some teachings are oriented seemingly towards those people and they get very, very concentrated and then they have to be taught to now pay attention to what's happening. I guess our general scene is more oriented to people who are quite scattered and need to first kind of have some idea of how to pay attention to what's happening before they can get very concentrated. So you can come at it from uh, having more or less skill in either one, but ultimately they work together. Yeah. Does that help? Do you have anything to add on that? Just want to echo that, you know, as I've talked to different people around the Sangha, it does seem that some people are really gifted at that 
attention that pays attention to whatever's arising, the Vipassana one, they can totally go with that. That was harder for me. I was more focused like you were as a ballerina. The focus was much easier for me. So I had to also come at it the other way a little bit. And they can be one and the same. Uh, it, but if they are one and the same, then the question is, can your mind take in the changing stream of things that are happening other than just on the breath? What will make them more understand that they will be paying attention to things and notice the subtle changes? I really like the definition you gave. Thank you. To get the concentrated absorptions, you're not paying attention to the subtle changes. You're actually zeroing in on one sensation and staying there until your mind is completely absorbed. And the value of that is deep, deep, deep relaxation and bliss not insight. And so you, this is one of the differences between Buddhism and many other religions. Many other traditions have ways to get your mind into that very absorbed, blissed out zone. But you aren't learning anything about um, insight. But that's not to put down concentration because that extremely still, quiet, calm, absorbed mind is then, as we said, very ready to see things in great detail. So those two at the at the deep end of skill in either one there's some you know then you get to talk with your teacher about whether you're you know how to come out of absorption and work with mindfulness and work with awareness of change yeah i mean i understand for me it was more oh sorry Okay. Uh, I understand. I understand it for myself. I was asking the question more in, um, you know, my my curiosity to explain this to lay people, mm-hmm. and you know, we're using the word mindfulness all the time. Mm-hmm. And when you started to talk about concentration today, I felt that this could be an avenue to make people understand, quote unquote, mindfulness. Uh, but then you're adding this other layer that. Um, well, as I said to begin with, I don't like the word concentration. So I think we'd talk about settledness and calm and things like that as the fruit that people who aren't, who are just lay people, so to speak, <laughs> with respect to this practice might understand. Because everybody will think concentration means try harder and frown and so forth, and it doesn't. So relax. More relaxed. I happen to love the word concentration. Okay. <laughs> So my question is, uh, what does um, skillful concentration taste like off the cushion in daily life Mm. versus being absorbed, you know, in some kind of task, problem solving or or even just playing a video game? And then to go along with that, how do you cultivate that kind of concentration in daily life? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, the essence of it is is non-moving, unmove, unmovedness, unmovableness, and un- non-reactivity. So the less things bother you 
more equanimity, you might say. I mean, concentration, maybe how much are you mindful in daily life? As you, are you pretty generally throughout the day aware of your moods and your states and what's going on? That's a form of concentration, is the steady, is the continuity of mindfulness. So, you know, between the continuity of mindfulness, the percentage of time that you're uh, aware and awake and present, and how reactive are you? Settled and calm? I mean, concentration is a lot about these factors of joy. You know, happiness, joy, and tranquility. The happiness that comes from the PT happiness, it's like it's very energizing and then it settles down. You know, it's like you go skiing all day and then you sit by the fire at night. It's a whole different feeling, right? You're all energized and then you're just really wholesomely relaxed. You know, nothing's going to bother you when you're in that state. You know, so you can tell whether you have more or less of that in your daily life. So being more mindful in daily life, being more practicing mindfulness in daily life and noticing the whole path, you know, noticing when you're being reactive and cultivating happiness as we talked about, cultivating kindness, all those things help with concentration in daily life. But concentration is not the goal, it's kind of one of the means, the goal is freedom, you know, freedom and ease, ease and equanimity and freedom. Concentration is a factor in making those things possible. Is that enough? Yes, thank you. Okay. Anybody need to go? It's. I wanted to close with a just a quick metta as a closing. Can you stay a few more minutes? If you can't, feel free to leave. We we'll be around if you have questions afterwards. Sorry, we got a little off schedule today. Okay, so just take a moment to bring to mind something that opens your heart. Just to something that, you know, something that you feel kindness at the thought of. And just letting your attention kind of settle into your heart area. And I'll offer some phrases that really, the idea is to take in the meaning of them. See if you can connect with this intention. May I be safe from inner and outer harm. May I be free from pain and worry. May I feel at ease. May I be able to take care of myself happily.
And just bringing to mind that everyone in this program has the same need for this kind of ease and happiness. May we all be free, safe from inner and outer harm. May we all be free from pain and worry. May we all be at ease. May we all be able to take care of ourselves happily. Just reflecting on what an amazingly beautiful world this would be if everyone were able to have access to these qualities. May all beings be safe from inner and outer harm. May all beings be free from pain and worry. beings be at ease. May all beings be able to take care of themselves happily. special greetings and farewell to anyone who won't be able to be at the retreat and to anyone who's been participating online and is listening to this. We hope you've had a fruitful year. And uh, the program will start again in September if anyone wants to do it again. And we'll see you here on June 17th. I'll send out another email reminding you of how to register for that if you haven't done so. Thank you. Thank you.